Well, all right. Welcome back to Mormon Expression. And that was me channeling my best John Larson voice. I'm your host for tonight, Lindsay Park, from the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast, filling in for John, who is across the pond in uh, England right now on a trip. But he will be with you next week, so you won't have to endure this very long. But sitting next to me, I um, am overcompensating for John's loss with an amazing panel. I have the fabulous, the famous Richard Dutcher. Can you say hello, Richard? Hello. Yes, we actually have a movie star, a movie producer, movie director, a Mormon film cinema extraordinaire in the studio. So hopefully that makes up for John not being here. And I also have the wonderful Thane Forbes back for another. Thank you. And Brian Whitney, can I call you church historian? What should I call you? No. No. <laughs> but Brian is fine. <laughs> Former church historian. Um, I just recently finished an internship with the LDS Church History Department, so I w- I'm not an official payroll church historian. You should know, though, that I did pick him up from the church history library today. So he was sitting there like a little nerd in all, front of the All his microphone. protestations to the negative... Yes, so uh, I brought this panel on, and we're going to be talking about a topic that's been talked about quite a bit, the Mountain Meadows Massacre. But the reason why I wanted to talk about it is for several reasons. First of all, I have an ancestor. I'm related to Dudley Levitt, who was who is listed as a clubber and a shooter on the Baker-Fancher party. So that's our family's uh, claim to fame. And his granddaughter was Juanita Brooks, so she's family as well. So it, it's a very personal interest to me, but I also feel like uh, no one is really on the in the podcast scene. We've talked about the events, but they haven't really dug in deep and talked about some of the impact and the controversy surrounding it. So we're going to do that. But first, we're going to talk about Mormon news stories. And luckily for us, there have has not been very much going on. But let's talk about some of the stories coming up. Some of the big stories in the Mormon newsroom right now are the Mormon hashtags. Have you guys heard about this? The yes. Mormon You heard about this? Yes. How terribly exciting. <laughs> it's so exciting. So Revelation now can be in a form of a hashtag. The Mormon newsroom put out a list of recommendations for hashtags. So they are uh, recommending that if you're going to talk about the Mormon church, you can use their general hashtags. So there's hashtag Mormon, hashtag LDS, Hashtag Jesus Christ and Christian. And then if you want to talk about anyone in the First Presidency, they all have a hashtag. So, yeah, anything you guys want to say about hashtags? Maybe a little bit late to the game. We're coming again. Um, And uh, maybe if I was going to sell the church, I wouldn't use Twitter. But I'm an old guy, so maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Who hashtags outside of just being sarcastic? (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently, a new apostle does, because that's also in our news. There is a Mormon apostle that has now joined Twitter. You can all uh, follow M. Russell Ballard, because he is on there, baby. I'm looking at it right now. He's got his nice little headshot with Jesus. And uh, according to the Desert News, or no, the Herald Extra, he had about... 5,000 followers when the, when the so started. is he actually doing it himself or is he having a, a team he's my least favorite apostle so I'm just wondering if I tweet back like offensive things in the middle of the night is he <laughs> will he actually read them or will it be I think as long as you put a hashtag in front of his name then it should be good because... awesome no I don't awesome. know How do, and, what do you and if he has push notifications on his iPhone then he'll be waking up at midnight <laughs> when you're 
when you're pushing that. Finally, stuff. we don't need to line up in front of Temple Square anymore. We can just exactly. <laughs> this is right to the. Yeah, okay, like I'm it. liking this idea better now. Yeah. Okay. I see how this is working. So that's some of the big news in social media for the for the church. There's also just a few things that have hit the radar. There's a lawsuit filed against the church. This this made some news. You guys didn't know about this. I, I'd seen it on Reddit and. Yeah. This is the first I heard about it was today from you. Yeah. I, I'm not making this up. There's a woman in Arizona that is claiming that she was. Uh, sexually assaulted or abused by a missionary and impregnated by him and that the bishop covered it up with hush money. I think I think that that's how it went. Allegedly, allegedly. So that's happening in Arizona. Um, it hasn't really made big news, though. No, and, and not a lot. I, I, so I, I hesitate to say anything about it because you hear similar stories. Um, you know, a lot of people will say, I told my bishop this thing in confidence and then found out that everybody knew. Or I told my bishop this really painful thing and he said, suck it up and, you know, go back to your husband or whatever. So I, you know, we, we hear similar stories and, and so I'm, I'm afraid that I've conflated this story with others. Yeah, this is not the first time I've heard about it, too, but uh, apparently a lot of people were excited about it on Reddit, like it was a big deal. I I don't know. I don't know much about the legal system. We were talking about if it was a civil suit, because the statute Well, lawsuit means civil. And, yeah, so this and, and had happened several years ago. She's grown now. So you can look that up. It happened in Arizona. That reminds me of a great story. It may be a myth, but I remember as a missionary in Mexico arriving, and people were, you know, the missionaries have all these stories that we tell one another and one was of a new companionship going to an area that hadn't been nobody had been there for about three years nobody exactly knew why but when they were going around knocking on all the members doors they knocked on this very attractive single woman's door and she came out and she goes oh i've missed you guys we haven't seen you for a few years and she goes i just want to introduce you to my son who's three years old and you know, and, you know, we named him after his father. His name is Elder. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. I, have to work, I have to work on the punchline there a little bit. No, that's but, good. Know, no, that's good. <laughs> I, I, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard, like, similarly. With Why is it always the mission stories or, like, these apocryphal-type stories? Like, this missionary made out with so-and-so and, like, snuck out to the movies and then got a girl pregnant and... <laughs> oh well, that stuff happens. I mean, it's I, not yeah, apocryphal. I don't think that's I have yet to meet apocryphal. someone who who has that happened to. No, oh, every missionary has that story you with his companion. Me. If you got someone pregnant on your mission, call me. I would like to talk to you. <laughs> not, not pregnant, but made out on your mission. If you Everybody's... made out with someone, send me a message. There you go. I know. Besides your companion, no. <laughs> I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I want pictures. I want a sex tape. So you're saying no, you, I don't. You, no, don't, I don't. I'm kidding. you don't, I don't believe that a 20, 21-year-old man would is going to sneak out like, all the thousands of missionaries know. out there that there's not one. Don't shatter my vision of the Lord's <laughs> stalwart servants, okay, you guys? Like, I see these young men walking around my neighborhood looking very hot. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Forlorn. Forlorn. Uh, okay, let's move on. This is just going in all kinds of terrible directions. Okay, so our another our other news story is Glenn Beck was speaking at Liberty <clears throat> University and invoked his Mormon faith. Did you guys hear about this? Yeah. Liberty University is like this famous anti-Mormon school, right? By Jerry Falwell. Is it? I, I know that they're uh, wildly evangelical. 
because every seriously, virtually every evangelical student that I know went to Liberty. So, you know, that's the place to go for evangelical Christians. The rumor I heard is that they actually have a class debunking the Book of Mormon or something like that. That surprises me not at all. So that would be considered anti-Mormon, right? Yes, From an evangelical, I don't know. Yeah, it it is quite curious that of all the places he could have gone, you know, I mean, I can't think of anything other than PCU that would have been worse, you know. So. Well, he said he quote he was quoted as saying, uh, "I am Mormon and share your faith." And then he said, "Quote: Days before Joseph Smith was martyred, he was taken out by the sheriff. They tried to tar and feather him several times. The last time they took him, they said, "You owe twenty five dollars." He said, "No, I don't owe a man anything." They said, "No, you stole a stove." One of the most ridiculous charges I've ever heard. At that time, he reached into his pocket and pulled out his pocket watch. Beck continued, displaying the relic that he, that had he said had belonged to Smith. He gave it to the sheriff and said, I owe no man nothing. They let him go. They killed him, but on the warrant for his arrest, he wrote on the back of his warrant to his people, put down your guns. No matter what happens, put down your guns, put down your guns and trust in the Lord. End quote. So Brother Beck needs to read some history because the tar and feather incident happened, what, 15 years, uh, he might He years might not have been referring before. to that Missouri incident or Ohio incident. He might have been referring mm. just to the constant threat. Wait, are you saying that Glenn Beck needs to read history? Uh, that's exactly what I'm just saying. As, just as Joseph Smith reached in and pulled out a watch, I think I think Glenn Beck reached into his ass and pulled out that story. <laughs> so. Yay, we have our first contribution from the swear jar without John here. Yay. Yay. Good, you guys are going to have to swear double time because John's not here dropping the F-bomb. Hells Yeah. <laughs> See, it's already starting. All right. And I think the last story that I had, let me make sure, is uh, Real Beauty just covered the surge of breast augmentations in Utah. And if you're in the feminist circles, you might have seen this story. Just that Utah has the highest rate, I believe, of Google searches for breast augmentation. And well, that's, that's probably these guys. <laughs> that's not all me. That's that all me. So that's there's true. some other people. That's no, true. Uh, that but this be is a story that, in a whole different way. Yeah. This is a story that shows up every year or two. You know, somebody will do another survey about uh, you know cosmetic surgery, and and Utah's number one again. Does this mean that Utah has the largest breasts in the nation? Is that the, <laughs> I thought that was the biggest jersey. boobs? <laughs> the biggest. Yeah, is is that like a thing? Like has someone done a study? On well, that? they should. Someone should do that. Someone should. I study will say that. this in my word out in conservative Stansbury Park. There are quite a few women. <clears throat> I mean, I served in the Young Women's Presidency with two, and and in the ward at the time, there were five that I knew of, because it became a thing. Like, let's all go over and show each other the work Mm -hmm. that we paid for. So, not that there's anything wrong with that, to each their own, but um, it's it's a thing in Utah. So the story is Utah has the biggest breasts in the nation. We could say it that way, if you'd like. Dateline Utah. The the biggest Biggest aftermarket breasts. Yeah, aftermarket. So, yeah, I think that's the news report. Do you guys have anything to add? Did I miss anything? <laughs> anything else to add? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, okay, so the reason you that... You say you want us to augment the, your news story. The reason oh, that we have that. so many hits on their websites, and, and Richard is right, it's the guys that are looking at breast augmentation because they get to see pictures of the samples. And if their wife looks at their history on their oh, computers, God. they don't get busted for porn. Their wife thinks, oh, he wants I'm me to get a breast for job. you, sweetheart. Oh. Right, so... We've just discovered the entire the source of the entire... The no, do not... If you're going to Google it, go for gold. Okay, just Google breast. 
Right? That'll bring it up. Oh, I can think of some things that'll get you where you want to go first, <laughs> no. faster. Brian Whitney, no. <laughs> They're trying to t- teach me sexual terms that I do not need to know tonight. We can bleep that so you know. out. We, we can bleep that out in post. <laughs> so let's get into the somber, somber podcast. Mountain Meadows. Uh, like I said, it's been talked about. We did episode 46. 46 was, and I think the title was just Mountain Meadows Massacre. Yeah, with with Gene Sessions, so you can go back and listen to that a little bit. And like I said, this has been talked about before. The church has been kind of more open in the past few years about it. They've published a book, and it was not published through the church. It was, is it Oxford? Oxford, yeah. Oxford. And uh, Richard Turley and... Glenn Leonard and Ron Walker. Yeah, they... And what was the book called again? It was called Massacre at Mountain Meadows. Yeah, okay. It was 2008 or 2009. That's recent. And then Richard Turley also published an Enzyme article uh, about the same, I think, 2009. Have they done an essay? A church essay? No. No, but... So uh, one of uh, my cohort... Um, found a list of all the essays that are intended to be published, and there was 12 or 13, and, and that's on the list, but it hasn't been published yet. So it's coming. Okay. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what they say about that. There, As we're going to talk about tonight, a large part of the controversy surrounding this is how much responsibility the LDS Church has in in this event. So we're going to talk about the events. We're going to talk about what happened. We're going to talk about the major players. Um, I want to kind of open with the stories that we don't talk about. Now, as you'll see as we talk about it, there were survivors of this massacre, and one of them um, was said to be Rebecca Dunlap Evans. And the historian Will Bagley, who is famous for his research on this, he collected these stories. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a little bit about what Will collected from her story, and then we're going to kind of go into the chain of events and talk from there. So I'm going to read an excerpt from Mrs. Evans' story. She was seven, year old, seven years old at the time of the massacre. And uh, because of that, she escaped. And you'll see why they, they left uh, people that were what they, who they thought were eight and over alive. She said that she left with her parents and she had her sisters there. And when the massacre began, she hid behind a sage bush. Two of her older sisters were killed right near her and were lying dead beside her. She heard her baby sister crying and ran to find her. She found her entwined in her mother's arms, but the mother was cold in death. This sister, whose name was Sarah, and who was about a year old at the time, had been shot through her right arm below the elbow by a large ball, breaking both bones and cutting her arm half off. Seizing her sister in her arms, Mrs. Evans rushed back to the sage bush where she had been hiding. She remained here until she saw a white man who proved to be Jacob Hamlin. She went up to him and begged him to save her and her little sisters. She says that Hamlin was the only white man that she saw who belonged to the massacring party. She remembers distinctly that Hamlin was dressed in a suit of green jeans. After the massacre was over, she saw quite a number of white men washing the paint from their faces. So I would urge you guys to all go. I mean, she's got this whole long survivor story, and her little sister that survives ends up marrying one of the uh, the army, the U.S. Army men that came back to rescue them years later. It's a, kind of an incredible story. So I would I would urge you guys to talk about this. Go well, ahead. But- just from my understanding of the massacre, Jacob Hamblin was nowhere near. I mean, he was, he was nowhere near the site. Yeah, so, so I don't know if she's confusing. Involved. She might be confusing him for John D. Uh, Lee. Well, or or for Oscar Hamblin. Oscar Hamblin was was there. He was the twenty four year old, uh, I think, uh, brother of Jacob. Yeah, and I and I do know that as far as these survivor stories, you got to remember these children were super young when this happened, and it was a traumatic year after. They would not be 
you know, they would be fostered by a lot of these people, including Jacob Hamlin. He took them in. He was one of the people that took uh, these kids. So a lot of their uh, survivor stories are questionable. You know, um, she says she distinctly remembers mm-hmm. Jacob Hamlin in green jeans. And so we're going to talk about this and how a lot of there's a lot of rumors surrounding this. There's a lot of fogginess, a lot of things that we don't know. But there are some things that we do know. So should we go ahead and talk about the major players first? Let's kind of start at the beginning. Sure. Um, so to my mind, the, the players themselves are, are quite interesting just because you keep seeing the, the same people showing up. I, I'm not sure uh, how to start with this, so I'll just start from the top down. Um, obviously, a major player in, in the whole controversy and, and the whole story is, is Brigham Young. And, and I don't want to say very much about Brigham Young because um, there's so much speculation in my opinion, most of the speculation is is you know unfounded about Brigham Young's uh, role in this. Suffice to say, I think that uh, he created a culture where there was uh, animosity and distrust of the immigrants coming through. Every immigrant train had an agenda. In in you know, I think uh, in in the opinion of of uh, Young, and so he fostered this this distrust and 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 fear. But I think that's, you know, in my study, I think that's as far as it goes. However, um, he was, uh, you know, his his lieutenant in southern Utah was uh, George A. Smith. And, and I think that... Not confused with George Albert Smith. Right? Yeah. It's different. So, uh, you know... This is George that St. George is named after, correct? That's my... I didn't George know that. Smith. I didn't right. know that. Yeah, that's true. Oh, hey, look how smart we're getting. Yeah. Um, so anyway, George A. Smith was, and I, I shouldn't use the word lieutenant, I should say, you know, right-hand man or assistant or whatever, but, um, you know, he was the southern Utah leader, and so he was getting his marching orders, so to speak, from Brigham Young, and he had great animosity and, and you know, distrust of all of these immigrant trains. The other uh, two big players are the, uh, the militia leaders, William Dame. Uh, was the colonel. He was based in Parowan, and then um, under him was Major Isaac C. Haight, and he was uh, in Cedar City. Well, and let's give some context. So Mountain Meadows was in 1857 when the massacre occurred. So the church had just been in in the Salt Lake Valley for about 10 years. That's correct, yeah. And Brigham had sent a lot of the men, some men that he trusted, some that he kind of wanted to get rid of to southern Utah to settle down there. <laughs> and you got to remember, they had been driven out. And, of course, as they're leaving Nauvoo and Missouri and all of these places, these stories of the martyrdom are growing. It's cohesive. It's bringing the wagon trains together. It's helping them cross the plains. They're feeling very persecuted. They're going to come over to Utah and start their own country. They developed the Desert Alphabet. They developed their own language. They were going. To, they developed their own trading money system. They were, they were really going to separate themselves from the world. So outsiders were complete enemies, and uh, they were very suspicious of anyone. It's an interesting paradox because at the same time Brigham was also uh, trying to convince the railroad to come through Utah and thought that it was going to be a, a place of commerce. Right. So um, while he's trying to to create that that environment of separatism 
he's also drafting a constitution to try to apply for statehood and trying to get the railroad again to come through. So, yeah, it, so there's it, an interesting paradox. It, it's, a, it's a very interesting paradox is, is the word because uh, Brigham Young had uh, already applied for statehood and they gave him the territory instead and the territorial borders were not what he wanted. His territorial borders were basically from the Front Range to the Sierras, you know, the whole that whatever we call this Great Basin. But and, you know, they cut that down and, and he didn't get any of Mexico and he didn't get any of, of uh, Oregon and, and Idaho and that. They just gave him this chunk here and they made him territorial governor instead of state governor. And, and so even at that, he kept petitioning to, you know, for statehood and, and never could do it. And at the same time, he's so suspicious of everybody, and he wants to keep everybody out of the state. It doesn't make any sense. But as you say, that everything about the Mormons was different. You know, you listed all those things, but you should add uh, the polygamy. You know, I, I mean, that really separated them from people in the East. And most of these big leaders, these big players you're talking about, were practicing the principle. Plural. They had plural wives. They had moved their wives down there. Uh, to southern Utah, which would have been a really, really hard way to live. I mean, the dirt is hard and dry and rocky, and uh, they were just poor. I mean, they hadn't been to Salt Lake for very long and super, super poor. Yeah, it is interesting because, uh, I mean, as you say, they, they sent these people down on these missions. Just a couple of years, I think 1850 is when they started, or 51 is when they started sending these people south you know, to do whatever it was that they were doing. Um, and, and it seems to me like a lot of the things that they were sending them down t- south to do were a pretense. Uh, they were going to send them down there to um, establish wineries or to grow cotton or, or whatever. And, and you know, these are people that have obviously never been to southern Utah um, that, you know, that think that's going to be Dixie. You know, they called it Dixie. Well, this has got nothing, you know, this is, shares nothing in common with, Dixie. And they also had, we had a lot of the Utes and the Paiutes in Utah at the time. And remember, the Paiutes were completely displaced from their homes, from the Utes, and from colonization of the whites. And there was a lot of Indian conflict going on. Um, The Paiutes kind of really banded together with the Mormons because Brigham Young had kind of convinced them or sold them that, like, we are your friends and the U.S. government is your enemy, and it's our common enemy, and that's going to play into our story, too. So in 1845, uh, just before the Saints left Nauvoo, Texas was annexed into the United States. Texas was another possible location that Brigham was thinking about settling, and Joseph had thought about settling there uh, before it was annexed in the United States. But Brigham had maintained some relationship there as well. So part of like southern Utah was actually Texas people who were coming up north as well with their slaves. Um, in 1852, Brigham permitted, actually 50, Brigham permitted slavery in the territory in order to appeal to the southerners who were coming up. And a lot of them were cotton farmers. Um, so cotton uh, mission was opened up in southern Utah. We also had the Iron Mission, which is in Cedar City, which is going to end up being a primary focus of what we talk about with Mountain Meadows Massacre. That's true. I forgot about the iron. Yeah. Now, before we move on from the major players, you you mentioned Isaac Haight. Now, I think it's important to mention. Again, I'm I'm not a historian. My interest in Mountain Meadows Massacre is, uh, you know, purely cinematic. I've always thought this would make an absolutely powerful movie. So, if anybody the out there to that wants to, uh, I've got a screenplay. Will you read million? it? No, I won't. No. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've got three million dollars, I'll take that. And we'll go out and I'm working on it. This movie. Um, but 
so my understanding was Isaac Haight was also the stake president of Cedar, in Cedar City. Is that and correct? Mayor. Both and mayor, yeah, yeah, and and um, William Dame was also uh, a stake president. Okay, um, I think that's important to establish before yeah. we move on. Yeah, it, it, it is important to establish that these guys were, you know, they were civil authorities and they were religious authorities at the same time, and military authorities. Right. right. Yes. All yes. Three, they right? they held all titles: mayor, militia leader, Indian agent. Indian agents. A lot of these guys were right, Indian right. agents yep, for the government. Yep. Those two not, but uh, I think John D. Lee was an Indian agent, right? John D. Lee agent, was, right? and uh, wasn't George A. Smith? Jacob Hamblin was. But, Jacob Hamblin, yeah. right. okay. And he's someone we didn't mention. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I skipped over uh, John D. Lee. I, I want to go back to John D. Lee because um, his story is interesting. He uh, uh, he met and, and was uh, you know an associate of Joseph Smith. And so he goes back to um, at least Nauvoo, I think only up back to Nauvoo. Um, but, you know, he joined the church there and, you know, was was a, an intimate associate of, of Joseph Smith's. Then the prophet is is martyred and uh, he comes out with Brigham Young and he becomes, you know, an intimate associate of Brigham Young's as well. He becomes his adopted son it, through the adopted law of adoption. Son, right, right. Mm-hmm. In, in the endowment house, um, uh, he's adopted and, in fact, on occasion would sign his name as J.D.L. Young. You know, indicating that his name is Young, not Lee. And that's so how that's, the, whole, the high priesthood worked, right? I mean, the, if you had the priesthood and you were a priesthood leader at that time, you were in charge. It gave you power over the land. You had special connections. These guys were getting sealed to each other in these sort of, uh, I, I don't know, power alliances. Kind of a heavenly network. It's like networking, you know, yeah. in heaven, you know, or. Celestial LinkedIn. Celestial LinkedIn. There you go. Yeah, I like it. Do you do you have anything you want to say about somebody the go grab that domain name right now? The function of it because it's going to come in when we talk about the massacre. You're going to hear some religious language invoked, especially in John D. Lee's confession. He talks a lot about the priesthood being involved and some of the oaths that they took. Yeah, and that kind of thing. So the priesthood yeah, so is definitely I, part of this. I mean, I would reiterate this this much. Uh, John D. Lee was fanatical uh, about his religion and about his relationship with Joseph Smith and his relationship with Brigham Young. He was a little bit fanatical. Even at the time, he was accused Nutty. of being a fanatic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and his contemporaries said that about him. Okay. <laughs> That's all you want to say with that? Do you want to— About Lee, yeah. Should we t- talk about the events now? The, the sure, timeline? sure, just sure. some yeah, and I, and I think that we can probably start maybe actually with the Fancher party leaving uh, Arkansas for California. Um, the other the other thing to that, and I'm sure a lot of people are aware of this. So in 1848, when gold was discovered in California, that created a massive rush to to the West Coast um, for a lot of families from the Midwest and particularly from Missouri and Arkansas area. Um, this was something that I, you know, obviously Brigham Young wouldn't have predicted this coming over to the, to the great basin. Um, his idea was to go out there where nobody else was, but this became a major thoroughfare pretty quickly for people that were heading to California and also to Oregon. Oregon was another, another big stopping point for a lot of people trying to get to the West and start a new life. So the Fancher, um, Baker, Mitchell, Dunlap, Camerons, these are all families uh, that left their home in um, in Arkansas for, for California. We were talking earlier that we think that, that the Bakers might have been from Missouri. Um, but um, according to record, they actually left from Arkansas. So whether they went down to Arkansas first as a stopping point. Um, but, you know, as you're going down uh, along these journeys, you have to stop for provisions. 
and you have to, to refuel. So Utah became a pretty central hub for emigrants to stop for provisions, for, for resupplying, for feeding their animals, their herds, their livestock. Um, and people would spend quite a bit of time in Utah before, before leaving through Nevada and California. Um, so we'll start off with that. April of 1857 was when the Fancher Party departed from Arkansas. Um, a month after that, May 13th, is when Parley P. Pratt was murdered in Arkansas. Right, murdered by the jealous ex-husband uh, Hector McLean. Um, spring of 1857. So again, very tied into this. You've got President Buchanan sending an army to Utah to investigate rumors of sedition. Um, there were territorial judges that blew out of Utah, claiming that there was all sorts of unruliness going on here, uh, that we were planning a rebellion against the United States government. Um, and, and those rumors weren't completely unfounded. Either. Yeah, some, well, some the, of them weren't. The, the judges, and, and there were other um, government officials, but they basically abandoned their post in, in Utah because they were – you know they were fearful, and you know there's there's stories of these guys, um, you know, going out to to get milk and ending up in California. You know, uh, they basically just walked away um, from from their post in Utah. Although that was several years earlier, I don't think that that's in '57. Well, and it's not like you can like tweet the prophet like you can now. Yeah. Apparently, you. Like if there, everyone is talking about the army is always coming. Like there was this fear in children and women, and if their husband left for business, they were worried about the army. They just knew the army is always coming, and you can imagine without communication like we have now, you hear one story and it could be months before you get some updated information. Well, and, and Buchanan and and his generals had started the plan. Um, <laughs> as it turns out, it took them eight months to get here um you know they they started the planning for this uh i believe in december of uh 56 or or january 57 but you know as i say it took them forever to get here and so the rumors proceeded by many months and uh um you know uh coincidentally at the at that time uh brigham young was planning for this invasion um, and putting up fortifications in Echo Canyon, for instance. So he was, you know, he was of the impression that the arrival of the army was imminent. Yeah. So I, I do have something from John Turner on Brigham's response to that when he learned that there was an army that was sent here. Um, says that his his uh, rhetoric became angrier and more vengeful at that period, uh, and he started resuming talk about political independence for Utah saying, I shall take it as a witness that God designs to cut the thread between us and the world. Uh, so from late July through mid-September, and this is uh, of 1856, uh, Young formulated his political and medical, uh, his political and military strategy, uh, which included reviving the Nauvoo Legion. Right? And so every town and settlement uh, was responsible to, to, to have a militia ready at arms um, for this impending invasion. And, and my understanding, and I could be wrong, the real only organization that held those things together was this sort of religious priesthood, right? I mean, not, and it's not priesthood how we understand it today, but that's what tied them together. It's not like they had uniform instructions or weapons or training. It was just sort of your rank-and-file leaders that reports to their higher priesthood leader that reports to their higher priesthood leader. Right? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're called to be in the militia, basically. Okay. 
Yeah, and, and the government of God to them was a real form of government, right? Um, so amid the rumors that army troops had intended to hang Brigham Young, um, he had said, without sacrifice, or with, uh, with or without a trial, Young made clear that unlike Joseph Smith, he would not sacrifice himself to save his people. So when they started these militias, their immediate objective was limited to just keeping the army from reaching the Mormon settlements. They were planned, uh, their plans were mostly to slow the troops and advance the militia raids on supply trains and other forms of just harassment. And then if all else failed, then the Nauvoo Legion would begin resisting uh, the army's descent into the Salt Lake Valley. And if the Nauvoo Legion failed to stop the expedition's advance, uh, or advance then Young planned to evacuate and burn Salt Lake City down and uh, ev- evacuate to a new location, which presumably was down in Me- Mexico. Right. So this is kind of the scenario that the Fancher party is walking into. Walking into the middle of, mm-hmm. right. And and so the Fancher party ends up being uh, uh, kind of a rehearsal for... No, we kind of jumped ahead, and we're, yeah. we're assuming that everybody understands who the Fancher party is and what it was. So do you want to give us a quick update on... Um, I mean, these were these were families. These were just Ameri- you know, uh, yeah, middle class American families. So when I was talking about the gold rush and the rush to California to create new lives, these these are groups that were doing that. These the were- Fanchers in particular um, were rather well to do in Arkansas, relatively speaking, and uh, uh, rather experienced. Um, Alexander Fancher, uh, who was the head of the Fancher Party in '57, had already been to California at least twice, and there's speculation he'd already been to California three times. And so he was in the process of planting his family in California. And so, you know, as I say, he was rather experienced on the trail. Um, and I think and, it was and, Sarah Baker or Sarah Francis Baker, one of the survivors. She was three at the time. I think it was her that said that it was the most uh, wealthy wagon train to ever come across the plains. I don't know how substantiated that is. But that well, was her. Claim. It is substantiated. Um, uh, the contemporary reports say the same thing. They say, um, you know, these this party is remarkable because you know they were gentle. Folk, you know, they were they're educated and, and well to do and polite, and you know they didn't swear and they weren't ruffians. So um, uh, all the reports from non Mormons say that these these were you know remarkable people in 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 the contrast to you know run a mill uh, immigrant on their way to get rich in California. And this was a, a party of about 137, 138 people. Is that correct? At the time of the the actual massacre, it, it was yeah, about yeah, under 150 anyway. So, yeah. um, so keep you know again recapping. We had um, probably P. Pratt's death. We have news of the U.S. Army coming to towards Utah, and we get this revival of the Nauvoo Legion, and we we begin seeing this massive rhetoric from Brigham Young that's very anti outsider. Um, very anti-Gentile and anti-immigrant, uh, anti-American, actually. and, and anti-American. Exactly. Yeah, at the time. And, oh. I was just wondering if, like, if Fancher had so much experience coming out here, and like everything else that was going on, is it possible that he had any ideas, like the leader of this group, that that there was so much political unrest in Utah, or that they were, you know, I mean, clearly he couldn't have known about Harley Pratt's death when he left because. It's a month after he left, yeah. 
So as I understand it, uh, the first time that Alexander Fancher came to uh, California was in 1850, and then the second time was in 1853. And as I said, there's speculation he may have come a third time, but it would have been after uh, 1853. And so, you know, um, things were different in 53. 53 is before the the runaway judges, and and 53 was before two droughts, and you know, 53 was a, a whole different time. And so, possibly he, you know, probably he didn't know or. If he had heard rumors, he didn't understand, you know, the severity of what's going on. Um, and, and then another thing to keep in mind is that um, his destination uh, seems to have been Los Angeles. And so that's why he's going through Salt Lake rather than taking the the California road that goes through. But as soon as they got into uh, Salt Lake, Brigham Young had made it clear and had uh, preached over the pulpit saying that we were not to trade with the immigrants, and and the phrase he used was not a kernel of grain uh, should be sold to them. And he had, so Brigham Young had what's described as an intelligence intelligence network, and so he had his spies out there um, making sure that nobody traded with the Fanchers, and, uh, and so they weren't able to trade because, you know, if they did, then, you know, the, the elders would come and, and tattle and, and stop them. And, and there are reports mm-hmm. where the, the elders did, like, literally go and stop a sale of, um, you know, a block of cheese or, you know, a, a bag of, of flour. There was, a, there was another report of a, of a member who was beaten pretty badly for trading with immigrants during this time. So, so just getting back to the timeline then, so... Um, January 18 or July 1857, uh, we get word. Let's see, July 9th, we get word that um, the immigrants have arrived in Salt Lake City. I apologize. That July 20th, July 9th, there was a newspaper article that came out of Alta, California, bragging about Polly P. Pratt's death. So, within 11 days, you get this party that's arriving in Salt Lake City. You have constant drilling of the Nauvoo Legion. Uh, in their various areas, you've yeah, got this up, rhetoric. up and down the Wasatch Front, yeah. and then you have this strong anti-outsider rhetoric um, and anti-American rhetoric at the same time. July twenty-third, eighteen fifty-seven, Elias Smith wrote in his journal: "Probably P. Pratt was one of the apostles and was in Kansas at Fort Scott and Fort Smith for the purpose of enlightening the people on Mormonism. He unfortunately for himself was murdered by the heathen Gentiles." This immigrant train happened to be from the same section of the country in which Pratt was killed. The Mormons were so uh, insulted and indignant over the death of the murder of Pratt that they wreaked untold vengeance on the poor immigrants. This is is supposed to be the cause of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Now, we have a lot more information than that now. But this was, as you can see, at the time, this was the ongoing rumor that these people were uh, from the same area that Pratt was just murdered in, and that was fueling hostility. All right. Now, can we take a quick moment and talk about the those this murder of Parley P. Pratt because that that is important to. I love this story because I'm, <laughs> I'm a monster, but no, I love this story. It's a good story. Please do. Yeah. Well, I I can only give you the the broad strokes, but but yeah, he. Uh, he was murdered by, you called him the ex-husband, but I'm not sure they were divorced. No, they were not. So uh, I'll start, and you guys can okay. <laughs> jump in with details. But Parley 
was in Arkansas and he was doing missionary work uh, amongst whatever else he was doing. And he had met this <laughs> amongst woman. whatever else he was doing. And what was her name? Emily? Uh, somebody get that for me before I finish my story. Anyway, he had met her. Uh, she had been uh, convinced by his preaching and she wanted to join the church, uh, but her husband wouldn't allow it. And uh, Helen. Helen? Okay. So Helen uh, McLean, right. Isn't that Eleanor? Keep going. See, I thought it was okay. We're gonna we're gonna have to look this up. This is homework assignment for you folks at home looking now. Stop the podcast and go and, and, and Google this. Anyway, um, she had been convinced uh, to join the church, but her husband wouldn't allow it. Parley kept working on her, and uh, eventually she uh, absconded. By working on her, I mean, yeah, he was romancing. He was romancing. Bearing his testimony, Richard. He was bearing his testimony. He was burying his testimony. May <laughs> see. So now stop. I'm trying to tell a story here. So um, any anyway, um, at some point, you know, she absconded with him. And uh, well, I would just like to point out that him. she claims that her husband was abusive, severely abusive. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, she was living in California at the time, wasn't she? When she went up, she to had been back and forth because okay. uh, she had snuck out, and uh, well, and, and he said she was crazy, right? So isn't that how it goes in she, breakups? It's always uh, yeah. the husband did, right? Or, or that was, that, was a, that was some humor. On no, no, because I, no, I think you're <laughs> right. I think that he did that. actually. So I think he actually really did. The children were sent away to to her parents in uh, was it Mississippi or Arkansas, and and she went to California and then and reconciled and came back and then left again with Parley, ended up marrying him without benefit of divorce. She went in as a governess to their house. Yeah, and and then things got ugly. Then got a different kind of job offer, and then they he got called to the mission and she went along with him to get her children. Okay, All right? Is that how it went? Anyway, he see we got there in the end. Yeah, we haven't even gotten to the. We haven't okay, even so let's to the let's hurry up. So anyway, long story short, Parley's in Arkansas doing some stuff. This guy follows him all the way out. Well, he's jailed. He's, he's yeah. And, uh, and that's a fun story about his break out of jail too. He gets, there's a great story. There's about a whole the story, out, yeah. but we don't have time. We have so many stories to talk this about. This is not well, a basically just the husband follows him out of town until they're alone. He finds him by a, a river and stabs, stabs him, him multiple death. times. Leaves yeah. him in a shallow ditch. So basically, it's a it's an angry, yeah. you know, he was angry as far as, as their di- as far as their divorce. Um, yeah, I mean, she clearly left him, and and I would argue that if you look at the times, a lot of people didn't get legal divorces during this time; they just left. Uh, that was that was pretty common. Um, Andrew Jackson, president, he had a wife uh, prior to his second wife, who he was still technically married to, and. Right. Just, I, I just think the important thing to note is that you know it wasn't yeah. just this. He wasn't martyred for the cause. It no, it didn't have no. anything to do with no. that. Well, that's how the, how they <laughs> looked at it. Absolutely, that's all they heard that he was yeah. murdered, mm-hmm. and so well, anytime an apostle out. dies, it had to be for the cause for the you know right. for, well, for but the if believers. you're getting murdered for plural marriage, that's the cause, right? I sure. mean, they're already being persecuted for absolutely their beliefs. He was, I believe he was. I'll double check because my memory is a little off tonight. But um, once again. Pause. Pause the podcast here. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, go Google it. Okay. So, so now we got yes. the Parley Bubrat story, at least the broad strokes. Let's keep going. Mormon Expression is a listener-funded program. If you like what you hear, please visit us at mormonexpression.com and consider becoming a subscribing member. While you're there, let us know what you think about the show. Okay. 
So we got the this the story in the California newspaper that was bragging about Pratt's death. Uh, we got the immigrants that that uh, show up July twentieth. Arriving in Salt Lake City, we have Elias Smith's journal talking about the Polly P. Pratt death. Uh, on July 24th, it says that our independence was c- declared as a free people by Brigham Young and his counselors. And the journal records all said amen. So we're, uh, July 24th obviously is a, is, is a, was actually more celebrated than the 4th of July in Utah, um, at that time. And at that point, Brigham Young is declaring his independence from the United States. And on that particular day, um, they had done a, uh, a July 24th celebration. It had been up in uh, somewhere in Cottonwood Canyon, and uh, Big Cottonwood Canyon. And um, because it was up there, the whole city was up in Big Cottonwood Canyon, and uh, uh, the Fanchers kind of came into view, hove into view, as they say. Um, uh, they were they were still up in Summit County, but uh, uh, people came racing from downtown to the where the Saints were celebrating the 24th of July at, at Big Cottonwood Canyon to say, "Oh my goodness, the immigrants are here! The immigrants are here!" And and so this is only a week before they got there, right? And uh, because they arrived, I'm I'm remembering August 1st, so the scouts or whatever come down from salt lake city meet up with the saints say oh my goodness the immigrants are coming and uh and brigham young uses this as uh you know an opportunity to change the rhetoric a little bit and and you know stir things up a little bit more saying oh here come these people you know trying to take over our way of life and whatever can i have to make a quick i mean just a quick side trip here it's i i've always as long as it's not about parley p pratt we're not it's not about parley p pratt it's about brigham young actually it's like one of my i i I love history love mormon history love always going to these sites and hearing things but two experiences i had was one was going to the uh lion house and going through that tour and listening to the you know complete ignorance of the sister missionary who was leading the tour and you know completely sidestepping every question that had anything to do with polygamy or anything whatsoever and you know getting up on the top floor and just saying oh there are other rooms upstairs that were used as bedrooms and you know I'm always the jackass Technically who's correct. raising my hand and you know <laughs> causing the <laughs> trouble but but my favorite story was in St. George when I went through the Brigham Young house in St. George and we get to one room, which was like the, the dining area, and there was a big plate of Abraham Lincoln. You know, it was like Abraham Lincoln's face on a plate, you know, up on the wall. And I made a point. I said, well, you know, this is really strange to me because, you know, I know Brigham Young was, you know, certainly no, you know, I mean, he was not a great fan of the United States of America. and Or Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln. And then, you know, the... Anyway, and you know, the, they gave me a bunch of nonsense, um, and I eventually quieted down. But the point being, was, you know, the revisionism that goes through there, where they're taking us through, and you know, and I have the same reaction. Actually, every you know, I live in Salt Lake City, and every Fourth um, of July or Twenty Fourth of July, you know, it's the Twenty Fourth of July, and the Mormons are all putting out American flags, and I'm like, what the hell are you people doing? You know, Brigham Young would have, you know, projectile vomited over this. You know, it's like. You know, he, he would, you know, raise the flag of Zion or, you know, of Deseret, but, um, but this, this revisionism where we, you know, as Mormons, we, you know, see ourselves as so patriotic and then we take that back to, you know, the 1850s and the 1840s and it was certainly, certainly not the case, you know. They were I mean? our enemy. 
Yeah, there was. I mean, and for some reason, people are hesitant to talk about that. I mean, I think it would make a fascinating subject, just, you know, anti-Americanism within Mormonism, you know, because that would just, that would just terrify so many people to learn about that. But, but at the time, you know, Brigham Young was talking about, I mean, they, they left the United States of America as a people so that they could, they could practice their religion. They fled they the United States. They would have left Mexico again had Absolutely. they been forced to. And then, and they you know, we're, they're talking about, you know, fighting the government who's coming. And uh, so I, I just, uh, in, in this segue, I think it's important to understand the kind of, um, at the time in 1857 in Utah, and I'm going to go into this a bit when we get to my little section, but, you know, the the general feeling was not, you know, raise your hand and say the Pledge of Allegiance and sing the Star Spangled Banner. You know, that's not what... The Mormons of Utah were thinking. The Mormons of Utah were, if anything, the the, Amer- the United States of America was, if not an actual enemy, it was a potential, you know, very, very, you know, potential danger and an enemy. And uh, and and there was that same kind of Cold War, you know, like it was, you know, in the United States with the that same kind of fanatic fear, you know, and paranoia that existed, you know, among among us in the United States, you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the same thing was happening. You know, this was the same kind of in feeling. In the 1850s. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and more fuel on all the fire of just the potential for violence at this time. Uh, while Mormons were technically, you know, not part of the Union, it wasn't an issue for them, Mormons leaned to the abolitionist side as a people generally, because uh, they were mostly Yankees or Northern European immigrants. And uh, on top of all this, you know, this is exactly when Bleeding Kansas is going on. The whole country, Texas, there's a whole question about Texas a nation, all this stuff. The entire country is on the verge of violence all the time, you know. It was just a violent time. Mountain Meadows didn't happen in a vacuum. Crap was going on everywhere, all over the nation. That's an excellent point. Yeah, well, yeah. and yeah, speaking directly to what you're saying, this is out of the the Turley, Leonard, and Walker book. Um, in their preface, they 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 remind us of that. They say that the period from 1830 to 1860 has been called the turbulent era, right? And it, and indeed it was. Um, there was, as you mentioned, there was violence going all, all throughout the frontier area there, and. You know, and, and the bleeding Kansas uh, part, I mean, that was also involving Missouri, right? And the, yeah. And religious fanaticism springing yeah. up. A lot of American religions break exactly. off, schisms being formulated. I mean, it's the perfect concoction so for getting, religious fanaticism. Getting, getting back to the anti-American rhetoric and the timeline, on July 26, so again, two days later from the July 24th, uh, celebrations. Back in Salt Lake. Brigham Young has a meeting with his apostles where they did, where, quote, we discussed our enemies. Right. Um, August 1st, 1857, I took Eleanor, Eleanor Pratt's, uh, statement on the murder of Prolly P. Pratt. Uh, this was Wolford Woodruff's diary. August 2nd, 1857, Brigham Young publicly discusses the possible secession of the Mormon theocracy from the United States and the establishment of an independent kingdom. That's from Brigham Young Papers. August 3rd, George A. Smith leaves Salt Lake for the south, and the Fancher Party has arrived in the Great Salt Lake area. August 4th, Brigham Young appoints Jacob Hamblin as the president of the Southern Indian Mission and orders the Fancher Party to depart. Um, August 5th, Brigham Young declares martial law. The formal announcement was set out on September 15th. August 8th, George A. Smith arrives in, in Parowan. August 15th, 
Um, Samuel Pitchfork reports that the Fancher party was camped near Nephi. George A. Smith goes to Cedar City. August 16th, George A. Smith preaches twice at Cedar City, spends the night with John D. Lee, and Brigham Young says in a sermon, I will say no more to the Indians, let them alone, but do as you please. And what is that? To use them up, and they will do it. So this is, again, giving permission to the Indians to raid the emigrants that are coming through. August 17th, a member of Duke's train um, stated that he passed through the Great Salt Lake City on August 17th, and he saw everywhere preparations for war. That the company was harassed by Indians all the way, that in southern Utah they hired Mormon guides and interpreters to the sum of $1,800, and then were robbed in the muddy river of 375 heads of cattle. Can we uh, stop and talk about the Indians for a minute? Because it's a big subject. Um, as the quote that you uh, you just uh, quoted or, or paraphrased from Brigham Young says, utilize the Indians, use them to you know to harass these settlers. Well, uh, the the Mormons had been utilizing the the Utes and the Paiutes uh, for years, um, probably four or five years. Uh, for exactly that, they you know uh, suborning these these raids and and supporting these raids, and so everybody that came through, you know they they would rustle cattle and they would you know rustle other things and 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 steal whatever could be stolen and and harass all these people and um, it was it was a you know it was a minor economy that was that was happening in stealing from immigrants, and um, the Mormons were not only encouraging the attacks but also uh, supporting them by fencing the stolen goods when they were done so they would send indians out and the indians would rustle cattle and and you know bring a hundred head or whatever back and then the mormons would buy that cattle and 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 with impunity because the the settlers can't hang around and and do anything about it. Um, they're they're feeling lucky to escape with their lives. So this had been going on for years, and um, it had gotten to the point where uh, the immigrants knew what was up, and uh, the immigrants had noticed that some of these Indians were white, uh, awfully white. And I'm not talking about Zelf the white Lamanite here. I'm the, just to clarify, Zelf had died before this. <laughs> A couple of years before, um, not many. Apparently. Not many. Apparently, yes. Yeah. Well, and it was general. Missouri. I mean, it was general. It wasn't. It, there was. It was called fleecing the Gentiles. Wasn't. It? I mean, it was a general practice that was. You know, the, the Mormons felt, you know, justified in robbing, or you know, mm-hmm. or in you know, indirectly Bleeding robbing. The beast is the other phrase that right. we hear used, and they the would use the martyrdom of that. Joseph Smith as the excuse, you know, and and then of course of being driven out of their previous homes. You know, the Gentiles fleeced us. Now we're going to fleece them. I'm I'm so think. glad that you brought up the the vengeance for the martyrdom because that does play a role into this whole thing as far as just setting up the overall tone um and i don't know when it was in 1845 but the oath of vengeance was was added into the temple right 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 45 45 i thought it was left i do want to i'm going to give you a quote from this is a quote from john dealey's confession again because i've got that in front of me and he claims that isaac v Haight took him on the 7th of september and again you you heard that john dealey was spending the night with george a smith and now isaac Haight comes they're kind of grooming him according to john dealey 
to uh, be involved in this. And they take him away. He takes his stuff. He leaves his wife. He, he takes a blanket. And they go into the old iron works and camp out for the night. And they're whispering in secrets. It's very, it's very secretive. And he says... Um, he says, quote, The word and command of Isaac C. Hate were the law in Cedar City at that time, and to disobey his orders was certain death, be, right, be they right or wrong. No saint was permitted to question them. Their duty was obedience or death. When I met Hate, I asked him what he wanted with me. He said he wanted to have a long talk with me on a private particular business. We took some blankets and went over to the old ironworks and lay there that night so we could talk in private and safety. After we got there, Haight told me about the train of immigrants. He said, and I believed every word that he spoke, for I believed it was an impossible thing for one so high in the priesthood as he was to be guilty of falsehood, that the immigrants were a rough and abusive set of men, that they had, while traveling through Utah, been very abusive to all the Mormons they met, that they had insulted, outraged, and ravished many of the Mormon women, that the abuses heaped upon the people by the immigrants during their trip from Provo to Cedar City had been constant and shameful, that they burned fences and destroyed crops, that at many points on the road they had poisoned the water so that all the people and the stock that drank of their water became sick, and many had died from the effects of poison. That these vile Gentiles publicly proclaimed that, that they had the very pistol from which the prophet Joseph Smith was murdered and threatened to kill Brigham Young and all the apostles. So they, the, that was, became a big rumor in Cedar City that these guys were toting the gun that shot Joseph Smith. The very gun. So again, about just all the lines of pressure going on, because we were talking about how the Mormons sort of had this friendly, utilized the Indian relationship. Remember, at the exact same time, the Indian wars are going on. So we're, the Union is fighting the Indians. So this is just another way that Brigham can do the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, and also, generally, they didn't like the way the Union treated the Lamanites because they were the Lamanites, of course. The Mormons had this other view. And I lost my other train of thought. But you see all of these multiple lines where, oh, again, the, the idea of vengeance because it wasn't just vengeance against the mobsters who killed Joseph. You know, there was this general cultural push, and they yeah. saw the Union as being at most, or at least, uh, a, a tacit accomplice, you know, allowing yeah, all it. Americans, so, all Americans and, were anti And therefore, all of America. And so they played every line they could, because, of course, the Union in the South, all this tension was building. They played on that tension. The Indian Wars, they played on that tension. There wasn't a, there wasn't a, a, a space where Brigham Young didn't put tension. So, of course, all of these people yeah. put pressure straight back, the, you know, creating the pressure that leads up to what's coming. And, and I'm just going to nuance one word played up the tensions versus getting caught up in the tensions, right? Because I think that there's, if we're going to take an empathetic approach anyway, which I think to some extent we should, um, then there's just as much getting caught up in the tensions that are going on as much as there is playing the tensions or manipulating the situation, right? It's happening both ways. Well, let's let's keep moving into okay. the actual massacre because now we know that there there's a whole environment. Yep. You know, exactly. I'm still about a month before that, and there's some important key uh, dates here, but we'll get through this here. So August 18th, um, George A. Smith arrives in Washington City. He preaches in the afternoon, and a dame at the same time is drilling the militia. Yeah, yeah. Um, August it, 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 it's funny uh, when you read Bagley's book that uh, when he's describing these same events, every time George A. Smith arrives in a new town, he, he finds the uh, militia on the drill field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, August twenty fourth, uh, Wolfred Woodruff hears Eleanor Pratt describe Parley's death. So again, we've got that reminder of Parley's death. 
Uh, August 25th, George A. Smith camps near Fancher's at Cora Creek. Jacob Hamblin suggested they continue the trail and rest at Mountain Meadows next to his homestead. August 18th, the Fancher party, August 28th, the Fancher party camps at Indian Creek, which is today's uh, Manderfield. Um, Silas Smith has supper with the Fancher party that night. Between August 25th this and is Silas Smith, uh, a cousin of Joseph Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Between August 25th and September 6th, uh, state president slash mayor slash militia leader William Dame and Isaac Haight, the senior regional military leaders of the Mormon militia, begin holding meetings about how to implement Brigham's martial law. September 1st, Hamblin and some 12 Indian chiefs on September meet uh, first with Brigham Young, and then with uh, his most trusted interpreter, which was uh, Dimmick Huntington, Huntington yeah. Yeah, um, of Great Salt Lake, taking part in this powwow were Kanosh, the Mormon chief of the Pavance, uh, Ammon, the half-brother of Walker. There was the Walker uh, War incident. And you, so you had this, this tribal meeting gathering. Um, and he told, this is Young, told the chiefs that he, quote, gave them all the cattle that had gone to California by the south uh, route. Right. Actually, I'm sorry, that was the chiefs telling Brigham Young that. Let's see. We've got uh, September 3rd. Jesse N. Smith reports that the Fancher party is at Paragona. The train arrives later at Parowan and is kept outside the town wall. September 4th, the Fancher party arrives at Cedar City and camps west of the town. Isaac Haight, 2nd Command of the Nauvoo Legion South Brigade, tells John Lee that he planned to arm the Paiute Indians and send them after the immigrant party. Two chiefs meet with Haight and John Higby and receive order to kill the Fancher party and to take their property. September 5th, Rachel Lee records that John Lee headed south and camps with the Paiute War Party. The men were ordered by Haight and Higby to participate in action against the immigrants and are told to report to a place in the hills near the ranch of Jacob Hamblin. The Fancher party heads south towards Mountain Meadows. September 6, Brigham Young in a sermon declares that the Almighty recognizes Mormon Utah as a free and independent people no longer bound by the laws of the United States. Fancher party simultaneously arrives at Mountain Meadows. Cedar City High Council meeting votes to, quote, do in the immigrants, and then decides to send a message to Brigham Young asking for his orders. And, and the, uh, the quote that, uh, that I have here is that um, Lee warned again that if, if Brigham Young wanted the immigrant companies to pass unmolested, he must give Dame and Haight explicit instructions, quote, for if they are not ordered otherwise, they will use them up by the help of the Indians. And then, uh, unquote. And then, um, so a note on the phrase, use them up, that means kill. Um, you know, it's, it's not a phrase that we use now, but at the time that meant use them up um, and, and make them no more. So um, what Lee is saying is that their expectation was that they needed explicit orders from Brigham Young not to kill or, or not to uh, have the Indians kill these immigrants. So that's, you know, where we had gotten at this point. Um, which is, you know, remarkable. And I, I, 
to a great extent, that's why we're here uh, to understand um, how they got to this to this point. And and obviously, um, uh, George A. Smith was a big part of this. You know, writing as he was a day or two ahead of the party, all the way down to Cedar City, and then meeting them on the way back up, um, or passing them on the way back up to uh, Salt Lake City. We're drawing closer to the actual, to the biggest day. But this is where the attacks begin. September 7th at dawn, the Fancher wagon train from Arkansas bound for California is attacked by Lee with about 60 white men and their allies. The immigrants began to draw their wagons uh, near each other and chain the wheels one to another. September 10th, at daybreak, Indians attack the Fancher party. One is killed and three wounded. They break off the attack and they drive off their cattle. One Indian. That's what you're, one Indian and three yeah. are Hate meets with Dame at two o'clock in the morning and returns to Cedar City with orders. The militia commanders, this is all on September 10th, the militia commanders ring the town bell in Cedar City, calling out trusted members of the Nauvoo Legion. Indians attack Duke's train at Beaver. At dawn, Haslam arrives at Young's office. He was the one that was carrying the message to receive the orders. Let's back up. This was on um, uh, August 7th, which was a Sunday? This is September 10th. Excuse me. Um, He he arrived in Salt Lake on September 10th. He had been dispatched on the 7th um, because the High Council had met in, in Cedar City, and they had said, well, you know, if we need explicit orders, then we better get explicit orders. And so they had sent Haslam back to Salt Lake City, uh, which is a curious thing because they knew that it was at least three days uh, back to Salt Lake City and three days back to from Salt Lake City back to Cedar. So, um, you know, at in in retrospect, it looks like this is just some sort of an affectation that they made an attempt uh, uh, to avoid uh, this attack. But, you know, one wonders why they bothered to dispatch Haslam at all. Yeah. Plausible deniability. Cover your ass. Right. I said affectation. That's a that's a $10 <laughs> word, right? So so Haslam leaves Young's office at 1 p.m. with the orders that Young gave. Garland Hurt learns that the immigrants on the southern route had got themselves into And what, what supposedly were the orders that we'll Young get gave? there. We'll get there, Richard. This is suspense. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't know how this ends up. Exactly. <laughs> I was so surprised at the ending of Titanic. <laughs> It went down. Okay, so Garland Hurt learns of the immigrants on the southern route had got themselves into very serious difficulty with the Paites. The Nauvoo Legion, did I mispronounce their name? I don't know. The, no. Na- the Nauvoo Legion leaves Cedar City and arrives at Mountain Meadows at about 10 p.m., and militia leaders there hold a council. 7 a.m., Haslam arrives at Brigham Young's office with Hate's letter. Okay, so uh, we have two conflicting reports on when he got there. And then left at 1 p.m. Young, according to the published Mormon reports, sent a message back to let the Indians do as they please, but for as the Mormon participants in the siege, if they will leave Utah, then let them go in peace. You call that suspense? That was suspense. <laughs> Drama. That was like hey, 30, you know, seconds 30 seconds. So, so I'm not yeah, a screenplay player. He had you in the palm of his hand for 30 seconds. <laughs> Couldn't just answer this is, the question. This is the internet. People have a very short attention span. <laughs> 
At noon, Mountain Meadows, White, Stewart, Arthur, Wilden, Hopkins, and Tate arrive. These were militiamen. About noon, several men arrive from Cedar City. They move camp 400 yards. Mormons begin to take pot shots at the immigrants. The immigrants chain their wagons together. 1 p.m., Haslam departs Brigham Young's office. And the main militia party under Higby leaves Cedar City. In the afternoon, Lee reconnoiters camp and is detected. Immigrants. And why is that important? I don't know why that's important. You because, because he's white. He's white. They're claiming yeah. that they're Indians at the point time, and now all of a sudden the immigrants see this white guy leaving, and they're like, oh crap, they've seen us. Yeah, the immigrants this- set out two little boys, actually, is what it says here, and uh, Lee persuaded the Indians not to kill the boys. He said at that point, so it's interesting. Um, stays on the west side for two hours. Okay, September 11th. Should I just do a summary, or should we break this down by minute to minute? Well, we gotta. I mean, we gotta kind of push it along because yeah. we're we're getting on. Well, so we gotta. Yeah, I mean, I think we know how this ends. So I want to get. <laughs> so the wagon train the gave up their guns, right? This was this was this was how this the went deal, down. The deal that was yep, proposed the deal. to them. So the Mormon leaders devised. Yep, they devised a plan to end the standoff by carrying a white flag. The Mormons met with the members of the Fancher Party and planned the immigrants' safe passage back to Cedar City as a way. Think, let me just interrupt just a second, just to set it up a little bit. I mean, we've got what we've got is we've got this, you know, wagons in a circle. These, you know, hundred and thirty-seven, hundred thirty-eight people who are in there, you know, scared shitless because, you know, first they think they've got an they've got a Indian attack, and then they realize that white people are involved too, um, that the Mormons are involved too. Um, and so here they are, and then the Mormons, you know, we've got the Mormons and the Indians, and we haven't gone much into the the conflicts that are going on between them at the time, because the Indians are like, you know, at the same time, they're like, hey, you, you know, you said we'd get this stuff, it'd be easy, and three of our guys are, you know, we're... <laughs> and these people are shooting back. Yeah, they're shooting back. That and, wasn't part know, of the deal. And, um, in fact, we can get into some of that later about, you know, how much the Indians actually had to do with the actual, you know, massacre itself but at, at at the point we're getting to now you know we've got these people that have been under siege for a good period of time how many days now they've been under Three siege or four yeah four days and you know trying to you know do they trust the mormons and you know the mormons are sending people in as if these as if these guys are uh, you know somehow you know trying to you know negotiate peace between the indians and the and the party when in reality you know it was all just you know, it was all just horseshit. It was these guys, you know, they're pretending to be on their side. Right, and that's exactly what they said is uh, we, uh, we're we going to negotiate a, a peaceful settlement with the Indians on your behalf. Right. Uh, you, you know, and all you have to do is is lay down your guns. Right. And so this has been four days, you know, and every, you know, gunfire and hiding and, you know, and we have. Right. And, and you know, no water for the immigrants. And, yeah, we have like. Uh, if if our information is correct here, we have about you know fifty fifty women and you know almost as many children and about forty men you know so this is a you know if you try to get into the heads of these people who are there they're under siege I mean people are shooting at them and they're in unfamiliar territory and you know and then we've got the Mormons sending in emissaries trying to you know so called right. make the peace and that's where we get to right. the point even where, a bad peace is starting to look pretty good right now and so who is it actually that goes into uh, to uh, give the conditions of surrender 
John B- John D. Lee claims he is the he's the emissary, and there's there's some rumors at the time that they sent out a girl in a white dress, and he says that never mm. happened. No, that yeah, that exa- it was actually a boy, um, and I actually did find his information. He was 13 years old who carried the white flag, and this is significant because in the appendix of uh, of the uh, Walker Turley Leonard massacre at Mountain Meadows, it lists that boy as well, but it lists him as a 33 year old man. Um, they got his age wrong in there. And I don't know if that was just a, a misprint, if they just made a mistake, but I actually found his death record and he was 13 years old. So he was a crossdresser at 13. He was a crossdresser. <laughs> no, but no, I, I think it's significant though that they sent in a young child with a white flag, right? That lead. Was he in a dress? Is this, no. no, John D. Lee says, yeah, that, says that those were rumors. Story. I was totally he <laughs> said, no, there was no white dress, but those I like, were rumors. I like your story better though. It is, this isn't it? That's yeah, a great story. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the, the wagon party is split up, is divided into two. So the, the, the Fancher party agrees to the, to the, to the terms reluctantly, <laughs> but they agree to, to go ahead and follow John D. Lee and, and the Mormon brigade out, brigade out, thinking that it was going to keep them safe from further attacks. And tell us what the, the terms are. This is the, this is when it really gets, this is when, this is like my movie maker mind going for tell it. Us, like, tell us, set it up. Yeah, there. go ahead. Well, the you know the terms are you know separation of you know, oh the, yeah you okay know, I mean in addition to surrendering you know if they give up their guns then they'll be led safely you know yeah. through you know so that the Indians will not molest them they'll be led to safety so give up all your guns give up all your weapons and we the Mormons will help you you know so that yeah, we'll we're protect, protect you, you from the Indians from the Indians yeah and we'll so take you in to order safety. to protect you we're going to put a soldier on every one of you you know to, to right. as a as a bodyguard and we're going to march you out under you know under the protection of of, of the brigade, um, and then uh, the women and children are following along behind in wagons. Right. They actually and, send them. Ahead. They send them ahead. They actually send the women ahead, and they put the wounded at the very end. So there's okay, still, there's some backwards. wounded in the in the Baker Fancher party, and they put them in the wagons at the end. So can you imagine the? I mean, making that decision. You know, it's like. To, to trust these, you know, here's the here's the Mormon priesthood, and they're telling him how it's going to go down. And I mean that that saying, okay, I mean putting themselves completely 100 percent at mercy, you know, of and trusting the uh, trusting the Mormon leaders. And I need to say that you were right about some of the children are at the end. So any children under the age of eight. Now this this is an important part to me. We always talk about under the age of eight, innocent blood. But when John D. Lee and several others talk about this, they talk about children who couldn't talk, which I think is very important. And would unlikely remember the events. And would unlikely, which I think is very cruel. But it's later, it's really uh, couched as, you know, eight and under this age of innocent blood not being shed. So children over the age of eight, and of course they don't know these exact ages, this is going to come back to get them later on, um, and women line up first. Then you have the men, mm-hmm. then you have the wounded and the children in wagons in the back under the age of eight. So the men are marched off to the side in a single file, each with a guard next to him. And then uh, it's an armed guard. An armed guard, yep. And then at some point, uh, Major John Higby shouted the order, do your duty. And at which point each officer, uh, turned to the person next to him and opened fire. But. Shortly before that happens, they start to hear the screams of the women and children. Now, they had purposely sent the Indians to hide in the bushes to kill the women and children. And Indians, I mean, not to get too graphic, were really good at hatcheting women and scalping them. And and uh, and I was reading about rape and violence, and it said that Indians didn't usually rape 
but they were really good at hatcheting women, usually the prettiest women. So this was kind of like their thing. And John Dealey would know that. He actually says in his account that, um, you know, he was crying and he said, I don't want to kill innocent blood. And they said, well, you're not going to kill innocent blood. These guys are all criminals. They're all wicked. We're going to keep the innocent ones, but we'll, you know, we'll have the Indians kill the women and children just to be sure. And a quarter of a mile away, John D. Lee led the wagons until they reached a point where Nephi Johnson ordered the slaughter of the women and children. And, and the wounded, they, they start hearing, but the problem is, they give the sign, and it's not instant, right? Chaos ensues. Yeah, yeah. I said uh, the the quote was hideous, demon-like yells. Yeah. So just envision this: you've got these, you know, these separated groups, all you know, walking in a line. I, I've been to the site. I, I visited a couple of years ago. I went to the actual site um, and and walked the ground and got a good sense of what what it was like, and you know the 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 mini ravines and things that are there. But you know, having these. You know, you've got the men, you've got the women and children, you've got the wounded and the very young children. And then, you know, to start hearing the, you know, the chaos of the Indians attacking the, the women and the children. And then, you know, and then literally, I mean, literally, these were, you know, your deacons and your, well, maybe not your deacons, but priests, you no, know, and your elders and because... walking along next to their person. And whenever, when they got the order, you know, having to, you know, turn with their guns and put it directly, you know, this is point blank, you know, putting it directly against the head of the person that they're, that they're supposedly guarding and just blowing their brains out, you know. So you've got the hatcheting of these, of these women and, and children, and you've got this, you know, point blank, just executions going on, you know, en masse. You know, a hundred and how many did we say there were? One hundred and twenty, and over within a few minutes. Yeah. So just, just this murder on a huge scale, all happening all at once, and uh, absolutely horrifying. Sarah Baker, who was three at the time, uh, later said, "It's funny how you will recall unimportant details after so many years." She remembers the black borders on the bright blankets in the wagon she was placed in. She remembers hearing heard her father tell her mother, get up and put the children in the wagon. And that's the last time she hears her voice. And her memory of the of the event is the black border of the blanket, which I think is interesting. And years later, these children would go on to remember dresses that, or, um, that their parents wore or clothes that their attackers wore. Really interesting memories like that. So that leads us up to the event, and I'm sure that you want to talk about the aftermath of it at some point, but did you want to move on to something else before then or... No, I just... Um, Richard's section. Yeah. Let's... Well, just to wrap up, you know, the story is suddenly there were 120 dead bodies, and um, a lot of them were just left there. The The small children were taken and, you know, taken by the Mormons and eventually adopted into families, and so these were children that were raised by, you know, the, the murderers of their of their families for at least a year for yeah for about a year until the federal officers came in and returned a lot of them so, to their family members so Jacob Hamlin took him his home is close to the site the kill site and he takes these children a lot of them are completely traumatized some are wounded like I said I read at the very beginning of the podcast a little baby her arm she has a you know a ball in her arm and uh, they're kind of in the next few weeks they're broken up and shipped to these houses john d lee would take one in and they remember this little boy wouldn't talk for a long time and they they essentially live with their parents murderers for a year until the army comes in but that was a that's a whole other story now some some stayed mess. longer i'm i'm 
almost positive of that. Well, they had a hard time tracking it down, and of course, there is a lot of complications with uh, getting that down. And, and of course, a year later, when the army comes, they're horrified. They erect a monument and things like that. Well, we and, bury the and, bodies. And, and within a year, a lot of these people left Cedar City. Um, Cedar City effectively shut down after this. Um, so they left, and so it was hard to track a lot of these families down. That although one of the survivors remembers being placed with a with a family, and she remembers some Mormon girl saying, "Let's go out to the site." So she follows them out there, and there's clothes, you know, still hanging on the bushes and things like that. Although they did strip the bodies, they they did not clean it up very good. It's shallow. Yeah, that's the other thing to is that the Mormons and the Indians, you know, went in and took everything that they could take. You know, all the Anything of value off the bodies. Stripped them naked, their, yeah. left their bodies there, covered them with some, a even turning it in for tithing. Yeah, the bodies were not buried. There was no, you know, they're, they're, the bodies were just left, you know, left in the. Yeah, the little the girl remembers seeing pieces of hair in the bushes, which I think is gruesome. Yeah, I read that. That was that was awful little yeah. detail. Um, so that's that's where we are, and of course, naturally, a lot of people. Um, this is why a lot of people are horrified, you know, by the Mountain Meadows massacre. A lot of people don't want to. If you want to really kill a dinner party, you know, in an LDS house, just bring up the Mountain Meadows massacre and start talking about it. Although everybody will have somebody that was part of the Mountain Meadows massacre in their family line if they're from Utah. I really do. Yeah. It's legit. No, no, I'm not. So saying, I'm saying literally everybody I've spoken to says, "Oh yeah, one of my relatives was there." Quick tangent. Yeah, I, I was really talking to a friend of mine who's a Levitt, and we got talking about this because I was I was reviewing the facts in my mind and she says oh I have family that was involved in that and so we start talking about family and I mention my family that's from southern Utah and I go I don't think they were involved in this and she goes what was his name and it turns out we're cousins so <laughs> everybody's a cousin in Utah and, and this is you know one of my best friends and now now I'm going to introduce her always as my cousin all roads lead to Mountain Meadows. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and it's important too that as soon as this happened, I mean, there was a there was just a lockdown. I mean, the Saints were ordered not to talk about it. Um, they wouldn't even talk about it amongst themselves, you know. So as the years went by, I mean, this was just a, I mean, the, an ugly, ugly thing that happened, and nobody wanted to talk about it. Not to the outsiders, not to themselves. They just wanted to forget about it, put it in the past. Juanita Brooks wrote wrote this about that. She said, in all the essential, in the essentials, all the different accounts agree. She said the points of difference come in placing the responsibility for giving the execution orders. Obviously, um, for many years it was all so secret, just like you said. Uh, the whispered stories told and retold, modified. To suit the whim and imagination of the narrator. Um, rape added to murder. Detail supplied so generously that it had been difficult to sift out the facts. Right, so, and John D. Lee would marry a young bride from England only three months later and bring her from Salt Lake City to his family ranch. And uh, this little boy is living in their home now. And she's just, you know, this teenager, like, oh, I found my polygamous husband, yay. And she comes and she she's hearing some rumors. And anytime it's brought up, everyone's like, don't talk about it, that's rumors. You're going to hear some awful stuff about your husband, but it's just not true. So just ignore that. And there's even rumors later, I think, uh, in the the fictional account by Judith Freeman, who writes about these wives, she talks about a story of this woman be given a dress that stains, has red stains on it, that is recognized at a picnic later. And that's that's yeah. kind of uh, fictionalized, but there are actually uh, rumors that those things happened, that their stuff was circulated. There, she re recalls being coming to the home and seeing shoes lined up, lots of shoes at John Dealey's home. 
So nobody wanted to take responsibility for this, right? Right. Sad, sadly for John D. Lee, he was kind of he was okay with his involvement, it seems, and he talked about it a lot. Um, never really denied his involvement in it, which later on led to him becoming kind of scapegoated for this, right? Because he was open about his involvement. Um, Not but kind he, of he claims he, he, for, yeah, yeah. he forges a fake report that he claims Brigham ordered him as an Indian agent to say, hey, the Indians killed it. He says Brigham Young signs off on this. He reports it to Brigham, and Brigham's like, yeah, let's never speak of this again. I'll sign off on that. Blame it on the Indians. One thing I've noticed when I do talk to people about this, if they do have family members that were involved, they they always they always seem to to preface it with it. But I don't think they were one of the shooters, right? <laughs> so that makes it better. They were there. They were right. having a picnic. Well, and actually, you find uh, um, John D. Lee's descendants who are very, you know, I mean, John D. Lee was right in the middle of the whole thing. And there's so many ways to look at his involvement. Like, was he a good guy? He just caught in a bad place. Was he, you know, was he a bad guy? I mean, did he become a bad guy? Did he actually was? Is he responsible for this attack? And you hey, find his, his you. descendants are just uh, violently, you know, defensive of of his name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of everybody's a cousin, I I uh, know one of his descendants, and uh, they are that. Um, so I had a quote about John D. Lee, and, and you know he's described as being both generous and ruthless, and I described him previously as being kind of a, a, a nut job in, in his devotion to Brigham Young. But the, the people that had described him had said um, he was the kind of man that would split his last biscuit with a traveler and then kill him if Brigham Young said so. <laughs> That's perfect. So, you That's know, perfect. generous and ruthless at the same time. Well, and the long story short with that is John D. Lee is the only man ever prosecuted. Uh, for this, he is killed by firing squad later on. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. But let's talk. Let's talk about the controversy. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by this because the Mountain Meadows massacre is one of the reasons it's a killer at dinner parties is because Mountain Meadows massacre is a huge can of worms. I mean, it's it's huge. You open this up and all these little worms start coming out. And you don't want to acknowledge or talk about any of these. Um, but but. I, I do. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I just wanted to bring up a few of these because, you know, here we're talking about, you know, we've gone through the, the horror of this experience of all these. Um, we've talked about, you know, if, if accounts are correct, then we've got, that's not my bottle, by the way. I just want to point that out. Mine's <laughs> safely up here on the table. Um, but, you know, we're talking about, you know, the, the decept, you know, the deception that was involved, the, you know, the lying, the murdering, the stealing, and all of these by, you know, supposed good members of the, of the, uh, LDS church in 1857. So, you know, this brings up, some, you know, how did this happen? And that's where the worms start crawling out, you know? So it's like, you know, a big thing is, is how involved was Brigham Young in this, what, Ultimately, as history has kind of laid all its cards on the table, at least as many as we can find and read, you know, this was a mass murder. This was an absolute mass murder by Mormons, you know, in the Cedar City, St. George area. And how did this happen? And we go back to look at it, and we look at it, you know, and in, in the in the priest, you know, priesthood authority having having men like Isaac Haight and Dame 
who were priesthood authorities, and basically, to me, these are the bad guys. These are the these are the guys. When I, you know, look back on the story, I think you know Isaac Haid is just a son of a bitch. You know, it's like he's he's standing off. He's not wanting to get his own hands bloody, but he's willing to go and you know order you know using his priesthood authority to order the execution of these of these other people. So. We've got, so where did this, you know, so did it, I mean, that's, that's one of the big questions, you know, the, did, how much did Brigham Young have to do with it? And my question is, is how much does that really matter? Because whether, you know, whether, I mean, we've already gone through um, and, and talked about, you know, Brian's talked about how, you know, the, the culture at the time, you know, all this anger, all this anti all this anti-immigrant, you know, and this, this fervor that was built up, which was fueled primarily by Brigham Young. And so, was he resp- was he directly responsible? As in, did he actually order them take out this train? You know, do it, take these guys out, or was he indirectly responsible just by saying by by fueling this you know this this hatred and this I violence? I think he's cryptically responsible because you know he he made his wishes known. He told several people on several occasions, "It's you know the, these people need to be used up." And uh, you know, he he dispatched George Smith to whip up, you know, and deliver that message a day, literally a day ahead. And, and you know, he made better time because he was in a carriage. But you know, he dispatched George Smith to give his orders to William Dame, and William Dame gave his orders to Isaac's uh, Isaac Haight. So you know, you can't, you know, even though we don't have written orders, you can't help but think that this was Brigham Young and. Brigham Young's intent. Right. So John Turner in his biography of Brigham Young wrote this, and I, and I, I agree with John Turner's take on this. He says, there's no satisfactory evidence that Young ordered the massacre. At the same time, Young bears significant responsibility for what took place at Mountain Meadows. A more prudent and responsible leader would have calmed rather than inflamed anti-Gentile sentiment and restrained rather than encouraged Indian attacks on American civilians. The several acts of violence that had occurred all throughout the previous winter, and there's numerous that he mentions, all suggested how easily violent rhetoric and incautious decisions could have unexpected and deadly consequences. During the early stages of the Utah War, Brigham Young fomented the hatred and anxiety that made it conceivable for Mormons in southern Utah to slaughter men, women, and children. Right, and the point that I want to make, you know, getting back to this one particular worm crawling out of the can, is... You know, whether it was Brigham Young or not, whether it fell on Isaac Haight or whether it fell on anybody else, it, it did fall on priesthood authority. It fell on, you know, okay, if it wasn't the prophet, then it was the stake presidents. You and know, they all that took blood oaths on the spot afterwards, allegedly. Right. That, so, if, that if they told, they would be killed by the rest of the priesthood. Right. So you understand why this isn't taught in Sunday school and primary um, in the LDS Church, because it opens up this big question. I mean, here we have a situation, an actual real-life you know, documented situation where a couple of stake presidents ordered the actual, you know, the ordered actual murder. You know, they ordered their uh, and participated you know, in their the priesthood. You know, the the priesthood holders under their responsibility actually ordered them. You know, to commit murder, and this, of course, goes violently. You know, goes against this whole Mormon understanding that we have of you know, do what the pre- you know, do what the priesthood, do what your leaders want you to do because they're not going to lead you astray. Um, and you can see the kind of dilemma that your average elder, I mean, here's a guy who's like, you know, he likes to drink a beer now and then, and here he is out there, and they call him out there, and, you know, he goes off in the wilderness because they need him to go there, and suddenly they're putting a gun in his hand and saying, you're going to shoot this guy in the head, you know, as soon as we give you the order, you're going to shoot him in the head. So um, what was that? No. 
So, Lindsay. <laughs> um, so anyway, so that's it. You know, so it it calls into question, you know, the priesthood, you know, you know, priesthood authority and obedience. This, you know, the, this uh, culture of obedience that's that's prevalent in the LDS Church. The other thing it starts to open up. You know, how did this happen? We started talking about the rhetoric. And uh, we mentioned briefly the temple oaths, you know, the uh, oaths of vengeance that were sworn in the temple. This is something else, you know, the average member of the church hears about and they think, oh, I, I never heard about this. You know, it's like that was, that was part of the temple endowment was to swear an oath to avenge the blood of, if the opportunity arose, to avenge the blood of, of Joseph and Hiram. And, um, and I, I think it's, uh, it, that's pertinent because even if, they didn't think they were avenging the blood of the prophets. It shows you the state of mind that they were in. Right. That that you know uh, the us against them, the paranoia, the the animosity uh, with Americans was such that this was this is something that's on the table, right? Right. You know, vengeful murder is right. On the I table. mean, you're basically swearing in a temple ceremony that if you have the opportunity and you're in a room with somebody that you know. Was part of the martyrdom that you're going to actually take their lives. I mean, that's that's pretty heavy stuff. And I think that that particular worm, you know, goes back to. I mean, who put that in there? Obviously, that was Brigham Young that you know that put that as part of the endowment. So, what I'm most interested in though is how. So you've got the the group leaders of this. Um, clearly, there's this sense of fear, paranoia, this heightened anxiety. Uh, this this cultural rhetoric going on. Um, what I'm really curious about is the rest of the people, right? So we have documented uh, 65 people that were present, that were that were there, that were part of this militia group. What about the rank and file, right? And what's their story? How how do they go from living in Cedar City and Parowan as farmers, ranchers, and iron workers? Uh, to becoming cold-blooded killers. Right, saying right. their prayers and doing the best they can, and suddenly they Exactly. Well, aren't there accounts of some men dropping down their weapons in disgust? I mean, of course, they all claim that they were the ones that did that. I'm sure, that, yeah, I'm sure everybody claims that. So, and yeah, there are some accounts of that, but there's also a lot of, there's a lot of ambiguities, like everything. Oh, yeah, as everybody's to, avoiding blame and yeah, you know, exactly. casting it all on um, other people. But if if I could move into that segment of of this group, because I think that that is well, let me let me go oh. into. I, I think that's fascinating too, and I don't want to leave that. But you know, the, I would just want to mention a couple other little worms before we leave the can. Sure. And you know, one of them brings up the, you know, this fact that even after the murders, the acquiring of the wealth, you know, there's something that's just you know it makes it seem was this simply robbery? You know, was it murder for robbery's sake? You know, ultimately, was that what it was? Um, and then it brings up uh, also, you know. Bringing the Parley P. Pratt murder into the story, which absolutely was a part of the story, I mean that, you know, that raises a whole lot of questions about Parley P. Pratt's activities as an apostle in Arkansas, and I mean his his activities as an, as an apostle, you know, in any way. So I mean, it brings polygamy into the subject. It brings, you know, it's just it brings adultery into the subject. It just, you know, it's just this Mountain Meadows massacre is just a basic, you know, cesspool of trouble. It's a mess. Um, and and we understand why now the church um, and church members have so you know so rigorously tried to avoid the subject, and they can't anymore. You know the history has caught up, has caught up, and uh, and it's fascinating history. And it's going to make a hell of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Get on that, would you? 
And yeah, and actually, that's part of the thing that, as a dramatist, that's something that fascinates me more. Is like, you know, what, you know, that is where the story is. There was a terrible movie made a few years ago. It was called September Dawn, and it was yeah, made don't by watch it. made. It was awful. It was made by people that knew nothing about Mormonism and even less about cinema, and about movies, <laughs> and um, which is the greater sin, yes. <laughs> and um, but but the real story here for me is it's that it's it's not necessarily. I mean. Maybe John D. Lee, certainly not Isaac Hayes or anything. It's the, it's your just average elder from Cedar City who's out, you know, farming and trying to take care of his family. And he believe, you know, he believes in the Book of Mormon and he's raising his family as the prophets have told him. And suddenly he's, you know, suddenly he's stuck. He's, he's in out in the yeah. out in the middle of nowhere with a gun in his hand and told that he has to, you know, murder someone. And this is what God wants. And not only that, but you know, the struggle that that person would have to go through to actually do that. But then once it's done, how do you live with that? You know, once it's done, once you actually, um, and that's what fascinates me about this story. And, and yeah. it's not one person. It's, you know, so many people. It's 50, 60 people. So the people that were involved, we have cataloged who they were. We have given some bibli- bibliographic information on them. There's appendixes in the, the uh, Massacre at Mountain Meadows that discusses them, mostly their military involvement, not necessarily their personal family backgrounds, but you can still find that stuff relatively easily. For the past couple of days, I've been reading through their, their personal biographies, and it's been heartbreaking, to be, to be quite frank, uh, to read from some of the rank and file. And I just, I just want to give two quick biography summarizations, if I can. One is um, Alexander H. Loveridge. He was 29 years old at the time of the massacre. Um, he was born in Ontario County, New York. He converted to Mormonism along with his mother in 1841, uh, joined the Saints in Nauvoo. He was part of the Nauvoo expulsion, um, and in 1846 departed Nauvoo and remained around Council Bluffs until 1850, then continued to Utah, settling in Lehigh. Uh, where he began building cabins, digging irrigation ditches, and planting crops. Uh, He played some part in the Walker War uh, of 1853. We're not sure exactly what. He settled in Cedar City in 1854, sharing a dugout with another family, and then began working with a team of horses and wagons at the Deseret Iron Company. He began herding livestock in 1856. He hauled coal, and then he was enlisted into the militia. He was involved in Mountain Meadows Massacre as a shooter. Um, After the massacre was over, uh, he returned to Lehigh, where he and his family would remain for the rest of their lives. So they left Cedar City and went back to Lehigh. He helped build the first meeting house in Lehigh, and uh, ultimately he worked on the Salt Lake Temple. Um, Daniel S. McFarland. Wait a minute, that was it? I told you, a synopsis. I thought you were going to tell us, like, I, mean, I thought he was going to end with like blowing his brains out or something. <laughs> no, no. You see, and that's the startling thing. Is a lot of people they just they had to move on, and you know. So for a lot of people, but you they said it was heartbreaking. Of, is heartbreaking why? Just because you're seeing this is an average, this is a normal. Exactly. Guy? What I'm seeing is heartbreaking. Isn't necessarily the aftermath that happened to these these individuals, other than the fact that hardly any of them stayed behind, right, and stayed in Cedar City. So obviously they were affected enough to move. Plus the ironworks uh, at Cedar City pretty went pretty much went defunct after this. Um, but what's heartbreaking is just when you go through these these biographies one after another, you begin to see this pattern of the type of person, right? That was, and this is the second. Uh, this They're is just true one. believers. They were hard workers and true believers. Yeah, and a lot of them were immigrants. And th- this next one is an immigrant. So keep in mind that the Perpetual Education Fund had started in eighteen. Not education, sorry, emigration. <laughs> Confusion. The Perpetual Emigration Fund had started in eighteen fifty two. 
Right. So a lot of the people that were coming into the area were immigrants from Scotland and, and, and England. In fact, Cedar City was well known for its heavy uh, English um, ancestry. And, and the people that were there uh, went there because of this sense of English identity that was there. Plus, it was a great place to find work. Uh, we were expanding the, the rail line from Salt Lake City down uh, at the time. So they were building a steam engine out of Cedar City. Um, this was the uh, silver mines, not the silver mines, but the iron, uh, the iron, the main iron area, right? The iron mission. So work was to be found here, plus this cultural identity, right? Um, so the next one is Daniel S. McFarland, 20 years old at the time of the massacre. Um, he, was a, he was born in the Scottish Highlands in 1837. His family converted to Mormonism in 1842. His father died a year after his family converted to Mormonism. He journeyed to Utah in 1852 under the Perpetual Emigration Fund and traveled under the direction of Isaac Haight. Once they arrived in Utah, they settled in Cedar City in the, at that time, newly founded Iron Mission. Daniel's mother became a plural wife of Isaac Hates. Um, Daniel became a member of the Cedar City Dramatic Association. He acted in tragedies and farces. He joined uh, the Scots and the Welsh in a choir. He, he married there. He married the, one of the daughters of Isaac and Anne Eliza Haight. He enlisted in the militia and was part of the military council of September 10th. He was on horseback on September 11th, carrying orders back and forth between John D. Lee and John Higby. And uh, McFarlane, another one of the, uh, the guards, headed a cluster of women and children on horseback. And as the firing commenced, Daniel was among two or three guards that kept the, the immigrants corralled in so that none of them could escape the massacre. Um, well, I just want to, I mean, what this makes me think of is, uh, you know, in, in my true believing days, you know, being a return missionary, being filled with, you know, filled with my testimony and, you know, with absolute trust in my leaders, you know, seeing, I, you know, born in another time and another place that could have been me. Exactly. You know, there, and exactly. thinking I can easily see myself, you know, here I was this, you know, just innocent, trusting person. And what do you do? You know, what exactly. do you do when that gun's put in your hand? You know. So to finish his story, and then and then I want to get into exactly. What I thought you were finished. About. Sorry, I didn't no, because I because I think it's important to understand how they lived after, right? And um, so after the massacre, he married uh, another one of the hate girls who bore him twelve children. In 1879, he took a second wife, um, entered a plural marriage. Also, in late 1870s, uh, he served as a missionary to, in Scotland. In 1896, he prepared an affidavit attempting to minimize his own role in the massacre, and he lived the remainder of his life as a day laborer doing odd jobs and died in 1914. Mm -hmm. All right. um, this massacre did have a profound effect on these people, but what do you do except pick up and move on? Right? And probably never utter a word about it until the time of affidavit started coming, coming around. We're talking about this, and also to confirm the whole thing about everybody has somebody in Mountain Meadows. Nephi Johnson is one of my Johnsons, and uh, Wait, that's it was one of my dad. Johnsons too. How do you? How, that's how it works. Uh, and it was his dad that wrote the words to uh, "High on a Mountaintop." That's where they fit in Mormonism. But the stories we heard growing up, and then they're in the most of the histories too, was that Nephi Johnson on his deathbed was unconscious. You know the way people die. 
And reportedly, the last thing he did was he opened his eyes and screamed, blood, 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 and promptly died. And as far as anybody knew, and aside from being a key witness at the second trial of John D. Lee, he never talked about it. That, that's how it came out. Yeah, thank you. I've read that account, and that was another heartbreaker. Um, so to, to, me, this is, to me, this is one of the most compelling aspects of this, because when you look at some comparative models of this, I think that you can begin to understand how people who are otherwise, like I said, hardworking, decent, believing people can turn into mass murderers in a relatively short time span. And the, the books that I would recommend, one book I'd recommend is called Common Men by Christopher Browning. Uh, Common Men discusses a unit of Nazi soldiers. Uh, these, these soldiers were... Um, were not, uh, they didn't pass the highest tests, so they were relegated to a lower position, right? But these soldiers were told to kill X number of Jews. And they were, um, they were ordinary men. Um, they were not Nazi fanatics. These I, I were. I saw this movie. Are you telling us Inglorious Bastards? Is that, <laughs> is that fictional? Were, but like I said, these were ordinary middle aged men of working class from backgrounds in Hamburg. Um, who had been drafted but found unfit for military duty. In some cases, these men were ordered to round up Jews, and if there was not enough room for them on the trains, to shoot them. In other more chilling cases, they were ordered to merely kill a specific number of Jews in a given town or an area. This is the interesting part. The commander of the unit gave the men a choice of opting out of this duty if they found it to be unpleasant. But the majority did not choose to exercise that option resulting in 15, only 15 men out of a battalion of 500 who dropped out. The rest went along with the orders. Um, again, and Browning argues this in his book, that these men in this unit, Unit 101, killed out of a basic obedience to authority and not out of bloodlust or primal hatred. Right. So while the specifics of this book deal with killings performed by otherwise average men, the general implication of the book is applicable to Mountain Meadows Massacre, um, and that is that most people will adhere to a command given, even if they find that act to be morally reprehensible. And additionally, the book also demonstrated that ordinary men will likely follow orders, even those that they might personally question, when they perceive that those orders originated from a position of authority. Well, and again, we talked about this in our Mormonism and violence, but it's in the scriptures. Nephi chops off Laban's head because it was necessary. The second comparative model is the Stanford Prison Experiment. Is everybody familiar with the Stanford Prison Experiment? So a basic recap of that, 1971, it was a psychological study of the effects of prisoners in relationship with prison guards. Right? Um, the experiment was conducted in the basement of one of the buildings at Stanford University between August 14th and August 20th, six days only. That was as long as they could last because it turned into a riot. Right? Um, 24 male students had volunteered for this. They had advertised it in the newspaper, looking for um, for students who were willing to participate in this experiment. They were not real prisoners. They knew they were not real prisoners. They were volunteering for this for this experiment. Um, and out of that group, there was some that were selected randomly to be given the role of a prison guard, and some that were selected, the rest that were selected to be prisoners. Um, these prisoners adopted to their roles 
far more than was expected by by the uh, those who were conducting the experiment um, to the point of violence, to the point of psychological trauma, um, and of cruelty towards uh, each other and prisoners, and to the point of almost a, a mob outbreak. They had to shut the, the experiment down before everything got crazily out of hand. Um, but once again, the results of this experiment have argued to demonstrate the impressionability and obedience of people when they are provided with a legitimizing ideology right, a so, and social and institutional support for that ideology. Relating again to Mountain Meadows Massacre, the ideology and the rhetoric that was going on during the time of this event, I mean, I hate to say it, but the Fancher Party was in the wrong bloody place at the wrong bloody time. And some historians have argued that had they arrived two, two weeks earlier or two weeks later, they might have survived. Right? It was just precisely the wrong time. Um, the third, the third comparison that I wanted to bring up was the Jonestown Massacre. Right? So the Jonestown Massacre was a mass suicide, but I think it's applicable to this in the sense that these people also killed their children. Right. So they didn't just drink the poison themselves, but they also uh, injected poison into the mouths of their infants. Um, in fact, the very first person that was witnessed to have taken the poison was a young mother with a one-year-old infant. And she filled up the syringe and popped it in her child's mouth first and then did herself. Right. Horrific. Horrific to think about how this could happen, right? And all the time during this during this uh, event, which actually up until September 11th, this was the largest mass murderer of American citizens. Right? This happened in South America during in in the encampment that they had set up for themselves in a rejection of capitalism and trying to set up this commune. But the rhetoric that that Jim Jones was giving was uh, that the government was coming for your children that the government was going to swoop in on planes, that they were going to take your children, that they were going to raise them to be fascist capitalists, that they were going to dumb them down, and that you would be powerless to this. And it would be better off if you died than to let the government do this. Right? Up to the day, and they'd actually had drills of what they would do if the government invaded and that they would kill themselves and everybody. They called it a, a, a suicidal revolution. Right? They were going to make a statement. Right? And so right up, right up to the very day, Jim Jones is giving this rhetoric, and they do see a plane fly overhead, and mass hysteria ensues. Jim Jones says, that plane is going to, somebody on that plane is going to shoot the pilot, the plane is going to crash, we're going to get, uh, or is going to come down into the jungle, we're going to get paratroopers that, that, uh, that parachute off of the plane, and they're going to come and take your children, and they're going to attack us, and they're going to shut us all down, kill yourself, all right? And, and they do, they follow his orders and do it. I personally cannot imagine being a parent uh, as as I am, I cannot imagine putting a syringe to my child's mouth with poison in it. But these people did, and and I can't imagine that these people were much different than the people in the Mountain Meadows massacre, than the people that were involved in the Nazi movements, or than the people that were involved in the Stanford Prison Experiment. Normal fear, people. authority, and obedience. Yeah, yeah. good yeah. a good concoction and. And I will say we're not away from that, not to say that our leaders are anywhere near this sort of fanaticism, but obedience is a huge part of our doctrine and our rhetoric today. Obedience, obedience. You had a ward member recently tell you 
What was the quote? <laughs> the prophet speaks. Yeah, I, I, I had mentioned, yeah, it was just this last Sunday, I teach a gospel doctrine uh, class, and I had mentioned that in the earlier church there was more room for public display of, of, of conflicting opinions uh, with the church leaders. And if you look at the historical record, that seems to bear out. Um, and she had said, if your opinion is different than, that, than those of the general authorities, then you need to check your opinion. They speak for the Lord. All right. So and you know and I and I yeah, I have a pretty good ward I think um, I've never been confronted and I'm I'm an outright liberal so you know they all just make fun of me from being from Seattle and being a liberal because it rains too much or whatever but um, but this was the first time that I had had that much pushback but but you're absolutely right and this is so this is what scares the hell out of me and this is this is why I agreed to do this this panel why I agreed to look at this this situation this situation and the circumstances that led up to it um, because like Richard said this could have been me. This could have been any of us, right? Given the, the, the absolutely fanatical circumstances that were going on, the fear, the drilling over and over again that the U.S. government was coming here, we need to prepare, that outsiders are here to harm us, right? I don't know how I would have responded. I would like to be brave and say no. I would have. I would. I would have gotten out of there as quick as possible. Right. No, I think you know. One thing that comes to mind is I. I hear so many you know people say I have a bumper sticker. It's not on my car because I don't put bumper stickers on my car, but uh, it's, I'm kind of famous for it, which just says question authority. I love that question authority, and it's something that's so contrary to you know to our teachings. You know, as, as we're taught as Mormons. Um, but I, I just think, you know, that's what Mountain Meadows Massacre is to me. If there's a lesson for church members to, to glean from it, you know, present day church members, it's question authority. You know, every time authority speaks, question it because, you know, it, you know, you might not be asked to put a gun to somebody's head, but you're being asked to go out and proselytize against, you know, same sex marriage. You're being asked, you know, you're being asked all kinds of things to do. And uh, I know I was, you know, I was one of those Mormons that had so much faith that I always figured, well, the leaders have more experience than I do. They have more knowledge than I do. You know, they're they're closer to God than I am. Then I'm just, you know, I'll have faith, you know, faith in them rather than looking into myself. And that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And when you look into yourself, it's a frightening thing to realize that we're capable of of darkness like we never imagined. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy for us to suppose that we're not, but I'm sure that's what John D. Lee said. Yeah. And again, I think, I know I've been guilty of this. We've all done things in the name of God that probably haven't been very God, godly things. And this is a good example for that. So sorry we ran a little long, but I think that that was really important. And I hope everyone rethinks the concept of obedience a little bit. I always think of it as sort of a, since my ancestor was complicit in it and the Levitt family I would argue could have benefited from this uh, I feel a sort of like uh, penance is for me is to always question things now I, it's almost a sacrament to me to question these things so anyway we'll go ahead and end with that and we thank everyone for coming out thank you guys so much for being on this panel and coming out and thank you guys for coming
Mormon Expression is a production of the Whitefields Educational Foundation. Visit us online at whitefieldseducational.org to find more about our current initiatives. Mormon Expression is recorded live in downtown Salt Lake on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. If you're in the area, please come join us in the studio.